1: Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show.
0: Talk Radio 77 WABC.
2: Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show and a real treat. Today, Sunday, best-selling author, Mitch Album, author of Tuesdays with Maury, has an absolutely riveting tale, a brand new book. Mitch is coming to visit. And so is the New York Times food expert, Sam Sifton, full of warmth and comfort. We're celebrating holidays and all of you straight ahead. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. With Hanukkah, just around the corner, November 28th, we can start thinking potato pancakes, which is very symbolic and always used during this holiday. Donuts, sort of fried donuts, potato pancakes, a lot of the goodies. I don't know anyone who doesn't love potato pancakes, latkes, they're called too. And the basic recipe is very simple. I remember my mother doing it all by hand, grating potatoes, onion, adding a little egg and flour or matzo meal, and then with a big spoon, frying them in oil, in a neutral oil. We love them. But, of course, everyone would sit around it. She could only make so many in a pan. And she had to stand over the frying pan as she did it. And, of course, there's nothing like homemade. And since Hanukkah is really starting so early, that means you have a lot of things to do at the same time. So if peeling and grating the potatoes are too much, you can always buy them. Almost every delicatessen has Mm -hmm. them. Or you could try to make them. You know what someone told me? Go get frozen from the supermarket, hash browns for the grated potatoes. Now, I've never done this. But we found a recipe from Simply Potatoes, which is a frozen hash product. And you get a package of the Simply Potatoes shredded hash browns. You The recipe calls for a half a cup of better than eggs. I would not do that. I'd use real eggs. A third of a cup of whole wheat flour, a quarter of a cup of chopped green onion, a quarter teaspoon ground black pepper, a little salt, a quarter teaspoon baking powder, and oil. And stir together the potatoes, the egg, the flour, all the ingredients. Just stir it, and then fry it in a pan. And if you don't want to do any of that, Trader Joe's sells frozen potato pancakes. When we were there, we saw them for 269 for a 10.6-ounce package. And it comes with stovetop and oven, and the ingredients look good. Potatoes, onions, matzo meal. They contained dehydrated potatoes, canola oil, egg, salt, and pepper, nothing else. So it was a pretty good list. Try it. You know Golden? It's a product you see in the freezer section of a lot of markets. They sell like cheese, balences, and things like that. They have, it's G-O-L-D-E-N, all natural frozen potato pancakes and they i saw one at shoprite for 479 and again the ingredients are good potatoes wheat flour onions canola oil and dehydrated potatoes egg salt and pepper and you can cook them in the oven or the stovetop so if you want to treat yourself to a little hanukkah goodie then you can do that someone said to me that Katz's delicatessen has them. you ever been to Katz's? Oh my gosh, it's a New York experience. Most people just let the guy you wait online and the guy's behind the counter slice, and you eat constantly before he slices your order so Pastrami brisket, all this stuff. I buy sometimes turkey sandwiches from them. And my son says it's like the best turkey you ever tasted, moist on their homemade rye bread. They have great hot dogs, great fries. This is down at Katz's. And the Second Avenue Deli, which is not on Second Avenue, it's on First Avenue uptown, and there's another branch, they make them, and they're pretty good too. Usually, I don't love the ones you get in um, retail outlets because. They're too big and fat. You need potato pancakes to be very thin and sort of fresh off the grill. But it's a treat, and there's no reason you shouldn't celebrate all holidays. We love holidays. So get your potato pancakes and go for it. We'll talk again very soon. We've got a lot more Joan Hamburg show straight ahead, so don't go anywhere.
0: The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg, entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
2: All right, everyone, welcome to The Joan Hamburg Show. And it seems like Mitch Abba was just here the other day, but no one writes faster than Mitch. And books fly on the best-selling list. Yes, one of the best-selling authors in the country. He's a broadcaster. He's a writer, plays, movies, syndicated columnist. His books fly to the top of the bestseller list. 40 million copies I read in 47 languages. Don't forget Today's with Maury, which absolutely is a classic. And I don't think any book, any memoir has ever sold like that one. Mitch and his wife have done incredible work when it comes to charities and changing people's lives, including an orphanage in uh, Port-au-Prince. His brand-new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, a novel, and a really fast read. I'm telling you, I picked it up, and next thing I know, I was almost finished and read the whole thing through, because you that's what happened. You have to see exactly what happened. But let me start with something other than the book. What happened during all these uprisings in Haiti with the orphanage? Were the children, are they okay?
0: Well, thank you, Joan. It's good to talk to you again, and uh, thank you for asking about our kids. So, yeah, you know, we we have 53 kids in our orphanage in Haiti, and I'm there every month. Uh, for the last 12 years so I've witnessed what's happened with Haiti and it is really very very dangerous now I'm I'm actually uh, leaving this weekend to go back again and uh, there's a lot of kidnappings out in the street Uh, it's very difficult to get from point A to point B the gangs are kind of controlling the major part of the country now and our kids sadly have not left the third of an acre uh, grounds that we have in almost two years they haven't been outside, uh, and that's no way for kids to be raised. You know, they're very happy in the facility, and they play, and we do everything we can, but it's a third of an acre, you know, it's 53 kids and 40 staff members. You, everybody's on top of one another, and we, we used to take trips out to the beach and to the mountains right. and take kids for ice cream and things like that, and we can't do any of that. It's a, a very dangerous, very poor place, but we keep working there, and our kids, thank God, are, are, are thriving.
2: But, Mitch, what happens to you when you get off that airplane, even with guards? How do you protect yourself getting there? Because you must be a hot commodity for those kidnappers.
0: Well, first of all, I don't announce when I'm coming. Uh, And then, uh, sadly, we have to have bodyguards in an armored vehicle that uh, meets us very quietly uh, and uh, takes us straight to the orphanage. And I never leave the orphanage the whole time I'm there. And then the only other trip I take is from the orphanage back to the airport. And, you know, we have to go at the right times and take the right routes and pray, uh, you oh, know, no, because pray. I'm not going to I'm not going to not see my kids. And, uh, you know, we just have to pray that uh, that, uh, you know, we're spared from that. And and hopefully that more importantly than me, it's, it's the you know, the people who are being kidnapped there are not mostly these. Missionaries, I know that made headlines here, but mostly they're just average Haitians. Right. Just
2: most of them have the no money at all. Nothing. They're just pulled nothing. off.
0: Yeah, they're kidnapped for $20. Oh,
2: gosh. And are, are the, one, the most recent kidnappings, which made big news here in America, as you know, still isn't resolved. They don't have any of them back, including the children no. that were part of the kidnap group.
0: That's right, including an eight-month-old baby. So it's really tragic, and I wish that uh, America and the United Nations and other countries would
2: rise Japan to the occasion.
0: Because, yeah, because nothing's going to happen on its own. There,
2: I know. Do you ever think about moving the whole operation to the states temporarily?
0: <sighs> oh gosh, Joan, I would pick you, pick the kids up and carry them myself if, if you that could. was possible. Yeah, but it's not legal. You know, you can't take the kids out, and they make life very, very difficult to try to get a. Uh, to try to get a visa and and the, it's the united states that makes it difficult well known, uh, you know they they don't they don't let you just bring kids to the states i mean you got to go through an enormous amount of paperwork even for a medical situation so oh i wish i believe me i wish i could transplant the whole thing but but the point is for the kids to learn to make their own country better you know, know. Um, and that's what we're trying to raise them to do
2: I'm talking to Mitch Album, and Mitch has a brand new book called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. And this book is a little departure. It's basically about survival. And it's about a bunch—well, the people in the lifeboat, there are 10 whom we meet and become involved with. But it's about, for many people, a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip aboard the yacht— owned by a billionaire. And he invites some of the leading people in the world to be part of this think tank on water. Out of nowhere, the yacht explodes off the coast of Africa. I think it's in the Atlantic Ocean. And we're taken on this journey by a narrator. And it's really, the narrator finds a book that one of the people had kept. I'm going to let Mitch explain to you. And it's also it raises a lot of questions. In the midst of all this, they pluck someone from the ocean, a young guy who says he is the Lord. Is he? And explain.
0: Yeah, well, you've done a good job of sort of setting it up. that The yacht explodes and everybody's killed except these 10 people, half of whom are the rich guests and half of whom are staff, you know, cooks and and deckhands and the like. And they're in this lifeboat for three days, uh, and nobody's coming for them. And there's no rescue. They see sharks in the water. They're running out of food and something to drink, and they're crying out for help. And then all of a sudden they see this body, as you pointed out, floating in the water. They pull him in. It's this young, nondescript guy, average-looking. They pepper him with questions. He doesn't say anything. And finally, one of the guests uh, says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And of course, uh, you know, they look at him and roll their eyes and, you know, he just looks like this punk kid. And they say, okay, yeah, sure, you're the Lord. What are you doing here? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? You were calling, so I came. And they said, oh, so you're here to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everybody in the boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And this sets in motion, you know, what happens for the rest of the book as the days go by and things get more desperate and they, you know, go lower and lower on food and water and they're, you know, floating, drifting away further. And some of them kind of choose to believe that he is who he says and other ones are convinced, no, you know, their money is going to save them and otherwise. At its core, Jonah, I wanted to write a book about asking for help, uh, which I've had to do many times in my life. Uh, And it seems to me that when we ask for help, you know, especially from God or the universe or whatever you believe in, we kind of expect it to, like we're ordering a sandwich in a deli. We expect it to be there in a certain amount of time and look like we expect it to. And if it isn't, we're upset or we think we didn't get what we wanted. Uh, But my observation in life is that, you know, the universe, God, it doesn't work on our timetable. And many times when you think you're not getting what you want, Ten years later, you look back on your life and you say, well, you know, I, I really thought that my prayers were being denied. But now that I realize if that didn't happen, then this wouldn't have happened and that I wouldn't have met this person and married them and had the kids. So I guess it was the best thing that could have happened. to me. Well, if it's the best thing that could have happened to you ten years from now, then it is the best thing that could happen to you now. But we don't recognize that. And 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 this is kind of brought home in this lifeboat where, where here comes a guy who says he can save them and they all go, ah you know, you don't look the part, you know, you don't look like Jesus, you don't look like uh, Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, you know, you know you're not. And, and, and a guy, he gets hungry, he gets thirsty, he falls asleep a lot. So they're just convinced, you know, well, we're being ignored. And yet the help might be in front of them all this time. And that was a really interesting idea that I wanted to explore.
2: Well, and everyone asks for help in a different way. And right. as you point out, has a different Version of help. You know, some part the seas if you're the Lord, you know, and others just right. save me. It's a fascinating concept, and especially when we are at a time in our own country with all that's going on, that religion, even though people may not under- realize that, is on the wane so. yeah
0: it is and it is on the wane and church attendance and synagogue attendance and all that is at an all time low and uh and yet we seem to be asking for help more than ever, especially during the pandemic and i i, I have to think that this book has been received it's been out for a few weeks and it's 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 doing better than the last four books that I've written combined you know, and I think it it what probably has to it has to do with the fact that everybody during these last couple of years um, has has been asking for help of some kind. And, uh, you know, and, and for me, I was coming off having written about losing a child, right. which, uh, you know, we talked about in my previous book, Finding Chica, was about one of the kids from our orphanage who we adopted. And she had a brain tumor. And, uh, and you couldn't two save years her of, no matter what. No, we couldn't. We tried and uh, we traveled around the world for two years, but we lost her. And I was very angry. When that happened, you know, angry at the universe, angry at God, saying, you know, there can't be such a thing as a kind God when they can't be kind to a seven-year-old. But as the four years plus now have passed, I've sort of healed in that, and I've, I've come to, you know, like there's, there's, there's a moment in the book where, uh, you know, I get to put the questions that all of us, Joan, would ask someone who claimed to be God you know, uh, if they really were in front of us and you say, okay, you get 60 seconds, ask me any question you want. I'm God. Well, I've got to put those questions in the mouths of the passengers on the boat. Uh, so at one point, one of them asked, for example, well, if you're God, do you hear all prayers? Do you answer every prayer? And he says, I answer every prayer, but sometimes the answer is no, which is what I have found to be true in my life. Or of course the question that everybody would ask why did people die? You know, why did you, have to, right. why did you have to take somebody from me? And at one point, one of the passengers confronts him over this because his wife died, and he's all said, you know, why? He's crying. Yeah, and he, yeah and why did you take my wife? And the answer is, well, when someone dies on earth, we always ask, why did God take them? Why don't we ask the question, what did we do to deserve them? What did we do to merit their love, their sweetness, their memories? didn't you have moments like that with your wife? And he says, yeah, every day. And the guy says, well, those memories, those moments were a gift, but not having them isn't the punishment. And he says, if we, I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this earth, but I can assure you they're not crying. And for me, you know, that was a very healing thing to sort of conclude and write because that's how I feel about our little girl that we cry for her every day and miss her, but she's not crying, she's not in pain anymore. And I think the idea of, of, of finding help and healing, you know, and realizing things may actually be happening for the best even when they don't feel like that, um, is something very comforting to people and maybe that's why people are embracing the book.
2: Are you religious?
0: I am faithful. Uh, you know, I was raised Jewishly and I still I still participate in the Jewish religion and I don't, I don't attend services on a weekly basis or anything like that, but I was very well educated in it when I was younger. And I, I, I absolutely believe, you know, I believe in God. I believe that there's something beyond this world. I, I wrote the book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. It's kind of, kind of hard not to, you know, uh, exactly. but uh, that was based on a, an uncle of mine who died, you know, momentarily and came, was brought back and told me that he saw his relatives waiting for him at the edge of the hospital bed. And, Ever since then, I've always believed, well, that must be what happened. So, you know, I'm I'm both faithful and spiritual, and I do think that we're here for a bigger purpose. And I do think that if we try to do things for the good, eventually things work out for the good. It doesn't happen in five minutes, you know. But, hey, for example, my wife and I got married late. We always wanted to have children. It didn't happen. We just figured, all right, it's one of those prayers that just isn't going to be answered. Fifteen years later, I end up taking over an orphanage, now we have fifty three children in our life, and including we had a little girl who was our little girl for two years, and they were the most amazing two years of our lives. so we did get our prayer answered, but it took years you know, and if you see the long picture as as, as they kind of do in the stranger in the lifeboat, then it's a lot more comforting than to go through life thinking, "Oh, nobody's listening to me, and you know the universe is denying me
2: right, and when you look. I mean, it isn't like you're finished writing books, but every single book has become huge. When you look back, can you really believe your own story? I remember the early days when you were writing sports stuff and doing great. And then suddenly you come out with this book and your life changed forever.
0: Right. Tuesdays with Maury. And, and, and that's a, Joan, that's where I learned the lesson because, you know, when I wrote Tuesdays with Maury, the experience, I wasn't going to write a book. I, you know, an old professor of mine was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and I felt guilty because I hadn't stayed in touch with him. So I went to see him what was supposed to be one time. And I have to tell you, you know, I wasn't excited about going that one time. It was, no, it was more like oblig- an obligation.
2: Yeah, and, you-
0: and then when he said, will you come back next week? I was like, huh, oh, how am I going to turn him down? come back next week. Okay, I got to fly to Boston again next week. And again, it felt like an obligation. And it, it took some time before I started to realize, wow, this is really benefiting me, you know, personally, not professionally, just personally, I'm learning so much from this man who's dying. And, and then I decided to write a book to pay his medical bills. It wasn't a career move. It was to pay his medical bills. And I was going to go back to sports writing. Right. I, we, nobody figured anybody would read that book. Right. And now so look who at what's care? happened with, Yeah. I I was denied by most publishers in New York. They told me now we don't want to publish. It's boring. It's depressing. You're a sports writer. And we found, you know, one in the end who was willing to give us the money to pay for his medical bills. And uh, I was going to go back to sports writing. And then instead, it changed my life forever. That has to be something bigger than me. And so I look at that, you know, as as, at the time, it just seemed like a burden and an obligation. And now I look back on it. And it was, as I said, the best thing that possibly could have happened. And I think Many people have that story in their lives, not just me.
2: Yeah, right. It was your fate. But what about music? You had bands. You were really involved in music.
0: Yeah, I was. And uh, I did not succeed in it. Uh, I was there in New York doing this starving artist thing like everybody else.
2: Right.
0: And uh, But it was because I didn't succeed in it and I worked at night's. Uh, as a musician and I had my days free and I happened to see a, the Queen's Tribune, if some people may still remember that, the Queen's Tribune where I was living, I picked it up at a supermarket and uh, I looked at the bottom and they said, if you have free time, we could use some people to help us with our newspaper. And I was just, you know, music was going nowhere for me. I was working at night, but I wasn't getting anywhere. So I wandered over to this newspaper and I volunteered and uh, I, my first writing assignment was (laughs) parking meters on 108th street in in Queens. Why were they going up a nickel? And that was the first thing I ever wrote. And, and yet if I hadn't done that, you know, if I hadn't walked over there, I'd never have become a writer. And that was because music wasn't working out. So even though I love music, that apparently wasn't meant to be my path, but it afforded me the chance to get into writing.
2: It's fantastic. It's really an unbelievable story. I thank you so much, Mitch, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. And, of course, Tuesdays with Maury, the best-selling memoir of all time. And this book is going to take you and make you question a lot of things and also make you rethink your own fate and your own life. All the best to you and your wife. We'll talk very soon.
0: Thanks, Jim. Great to talk to you.
2: You too. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC, so don't go away.
0: The
1: First Lady of New
0: York Radio, Joan Hamburg, entertaining and informative. Talk Radio
2: 77, WABC. Welcome, everyone. I've got one of my favorite food people, and you are going to be so happy because Sam Sifton, the assistant managing editor of The New York Times, Sam does deals with the culture and lifestyle coverage, And he's also the founding editor of my favorite New York Times cooking. And I just mentioned to Sam that he doesn't even know what he did for so many of us during the past almost two years. Much more complicated than recipes. Sam is a wonderful writer and has worn many hats at the New York Times, from food editor to national editor, restaurant critic. So he really writes, but during the pandemic, which is still going on, but during the heat of it, he sort of touched into our souls and in our heads and felt the way so many of us were feeling, the unhappiness, the depression, the misery. How are we going to get out of it? And he always ended with cooking may be one way. But he gave us so many options. I really felt that, Sam, you were holding my hand during a very complicated time when everyone, including little children, whose vocabularies consisted of super spreader and all kinds of weird things, you were there to walk us through as well as bringing food back into people who didn't even know they had a kitchen.
1: So right. this, the, the two were, were intimately connected in my mind. The fact that we were all of us or so many of us, let's not forget those who, who had to continue to work in person, our, our first responders right. our, our essential workers. But for those of us with the privilege uh, to work from home during the height of the pandemic and who were, kind of on lockdown in fear for their health, for their families, for loved ones they couldn't see. Um, I I felt that. I felt that um, and knew that lots of people were feeling that. And while I believe very strongly that food is a way of uh, allaying fear, bringing comfort, um, I also thought you can't just provide the recipes. You've got to. Do it within the context of the world that we were living in and that we live in today, um, where what's happening outside of our kitchens, outside of our homes, uh, very much affects how we are feeling in our kitchens and inside of our homes. Um, And I wanted to offer uh, empathy uh, surrounding that fact or those facts, and also a way out, a way toward pleasure. and uh, that we were able to do that at New York Times Cooking with all of our recipes, both the ones we had and the ones that we developed over the course of the pandemic to address the particular issues that people had with, um, you know, cooking so much more from the pantry than, than before
2: exactly.
1: was a real privilege. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm humbled by your kind words. Thank you so much. No,
2: I'm telling you, it made a real difference. I love to cook, but I have many friends who seriously didn't even know they had a kitchen. One turned it into an art gallery, and it was no joke. And all of a sudden, because of anxiety and fear, the way to get food was to make it or provide it yourself, even though we had plenty of delivery services. But people were cooking. And the recipes, oh, absolutely, right? They
1: were. And the recipes were.
2: that you gave us made it possible, even for I never knew I had a kitchen, to I love to cook. We could turn out food and learn about tasting and enjoying and learn about the pleasures of the table.
1: Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what kind of long term effect that has on us as. The, the, these generations that uh, experienced the pandemic most acutely. I, I, I love restaurants and I know you love, I restaurants love restaurants as well, uh-huh. but now I wonder the degree to, I wonder what's going to happen to the restaurants that, that we love in a world where for so many of us now, the idea of roasting a chicken and some potatoes and, and having a nice salad and a, and a bottle of wine is something that we can knock out really quite easily in our own homes. And that's not the sort of thing that we're interested in going out and spending $150 on. Um, that, that switch has been really interesting to, to observe because the friendly neighborhood bistro where you went once a week for X dish or Y dish has been transformed over the course of the past 20 months into our own homes. Exactly. And while there's plenty of desire to go out and have, you know, I've had a couple really epic meals um, post-second vaccination out in restaurants, and it's just different. The portions are larger. The the, the costs are higher. It's prohibitive. Every, I mean, it's,
2: it's thrilling,
1: but it is prohibitive.
2: And the restaurants, they are having a really hard time getting help. And plus, a lot of our comfort restaurants where you went not just to eat, but you went because you needed to be in a place with other people, which is, you know, a restaurant viability scene. They're not there, a lot of the little neighborhood restaurants. They couldn't hang on. And they're
1: gone. Yeah. I mean it was it was wonderful to see those restaurants that were able to pivot to take out or pivot to meal right. kits or, or, or pivot to delivery. But yeah, we lost we lost some restaurants and we're in danger of losing more, more as the as the staffing issues continue to to threaten bottom lines. I talked to in the course of my reporting I, t- I talked to a, a chef just the other day who is you know, he's, on the, he's working six days a week. He's on the line all the time. But like the, the, the ability to be the executive and the owner and the, and the kind of visionary behind the place is kind of gone for the moment because there's just so much work to be done just to get the service out. And it's, uh, I don't know how sustainable that is.
2: No, uh, that's, it's going to be interesting to find out. Uh, the first meal I had, and it was outside in a restaurant, it was like so delicious because it was almost exaggerated, you know, the joy of being in a place with a bunch of other people. But then one of the guys at the table said, I don't want to say anything, but I think I can make it better. And we all started Uh to laugh because, you know, he was someone who never bothered. You know, food appeared mostly. And New Yorkers eat out or ate out a lot if they could afford it.
1: Absolutely. And they used their ovens to store their cashmere sweaters.
2: Right. All pots and pans. That's that's changed. That's changed now. It is. And it's going to be interesting, too, Thanksgiving. And you guys have done a great Thanksgiving issue. Everything from Fabulous pies, simple recipes, you know, how you can do an easy Thanksgiving. But it is going to be interesting to see how many people want to cook it rather than order it delivered or go out. Mm-hmm. We'd have to have yeah, you follow it, up on that.
1: Yeah, it's um I, I it's interesting you know i've I've covered so many thanksgivings for the New York Times now and it's interesting. I think this is the first one where even though we're run you know we've run these stories on here's how to do it as a beginner here's how to do it if you haven't done it before but um the the sheer level of cooking prowess among Americans you know as we come out of the pandemic or, or still I hope we're coming out of the pandemic is such that thanksgiving's getting pretty People are getting ambitious about what they're cooking right. and how they're cooking, and I think they're really looking forward to the coming holiday in a way that they couldn't last year. I generally have twenty-five or thirty people in my house for Thanksgiving, and I know you I have do a, a huge, huge. Yeah, one.
2: I know we're we're and still too many, but but last last year it was four for us. We we did we and did the same thing. We had
1: nothing really. But this year, I, I, this year, I think I'm going. I'm going back, back to big numbers. I'm nervous about it. Um, I'm. I'm not. I'm really nervous about it. I'll tell um, you what we're and, doing,
2: Sam, and that's after me. talking to a zillion people, including your own Tara Parker Pope and a lot of public health doctors. We are. Um, we we borrowed one of our cousin's lofts, you know, so that we can really space it, and then. We sent a memo to all the family and guests. And we said, obviously, everyone here, because there are young children who have not been vaccinated yet and older people who have but still are of concern to us. Everyone not only must be vaccinated, but everyone must take a covid test within the day of. And that is written in blood. You can buy them at the drugstore. And we said, and if you can't, we are providing them. We've got extra that's, ones. And we, uh, that's thats great. I think if we all do that, then we can't do more when it comes to safety. Because we've seen breakthrough cases everywhere.
1: That's true. And we're doing the same thing. All vaccinated, same day uh, COVID, COVID test. And, you know, I... I, I, I got to make a call pretty soon on whether I'm going to push this thing outside, I, you know, or, or, or hunker down tight. Um, I, I, I think we may be able to hunker down tight if all those tests come back negative, which I trust they will, because I believe in the power of Thanksgiving to make us feel better. and I'm, I'm I do, open. too we can have a holiday that is one
2: for the right. history books and, and we need it as someone said it we're such a foodie family but as someone said you know it's not even about the food you know our usual who's going to do this and who's going to do that it's just about holding hands around a table where we're all together and for the moment all is well with the world now yep. What are you going to cook anything different if all goes well and you're going to have your group?
1: Well, you know the expression, you know, the cobbler's children go right, barefoot. barefoot. Um I I I for all of my preaching about Thanksgiving and, and assembling of new recipes and caution to people to rehearse the meals that they want to make or rehearse the dishes that they want to make so they don't give themselves the stress of cooking something new for the very first time on this momentous day. I myself will probably just revert to muscle memory and make the Thanksgiving that I know my family That's loves right, but we and, all and, and cherishes Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just, I, I, I need to do that because the idea of, you know, I can't be a, on the one hand coaching everybody while also, you know, coming up with new stuff that I, I want to do. So I'm very much looking forward to cooking a meal that I know how to make, uh, that I love to make, and that I can do with, bl- with a blindfold on at this point. Um, and I know that will bring a lot of pleasure to, to, the, to the table and to, to my family and to, to my friends.
2: No, that's right. I, I've told the story that my son, when he was listening, you know, talking about the menu and everything, and he had said, I want you to make X. And I said, but you guys don't like it. You've told me, you know, year in and year out. He said, it doesn't matter. We have to have it. It's what we grew up with. It's what you grew up with. We want it. And I understood that. It's like your persistence of memory. It's familiar. It's comfortable. It's safe. And it says it's a holiday and we're together.
1: Yes. Comfort will be the most important aspect of of this Thanksgiving, I predict.
2: Thank you, Sam. Happy holiday to you and your family.
1: A happy holiday to you, Joan, and to all of your listeners. We'll happy talk Thanksgiving.
2: And that's Sam Sifton, assistant managing editor of the New York Times. Sam deals with culture and lifestyle, and he's the founding editor of New York Times Cooking. More after this.
1: The First Lady
0: of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan.
2: Well, to the joy of many families... The Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, the annual parade, believe it or not, 95th, is almost back to normal this year with public viewing and the balloon inflation, which takes place the night before the parade, Wednesday night, when they blow up all the balloons. Now, my children grew up in Manhattan in New York City, and this was a must on the calendar of every kid who lived in Manhattan, every Wednesday night, we would have to go to where they did it. It's usually, well, it's always been on the Upper West Side. And you can get into it on 72nd Street and Columbus Avenue. And the kids would always do this. And they loved it. It was like a street party. And then it became more formal, where they had a walk through a designated path to get there. Here's what's different this year. If you're not vaccinated, don't show up. They won't let you in. You have to show ID and proof of vaccination. Social distancing is definitely going to take place, which I can't imagine because it's always been a mob scene. And if all of this works for you, and you finish getting your verification, the security check, the vaccine, you can move through the checkpoint and look at the balloons. It's all taking place on 77th and 81st Streets. So just don't forget, you need a photo of your vaccination card or the actual card. Or if you've got the New York COVID Safe app, some people have that, or the Excelsior Pass, As long as you've got proof, that's okay, and you can do that. So, let's talk about the parade. There are going to be public viewing areas. It's a traditional 2.5-mile route on Thanksgiving Day. It starts, as it has always, 77th Street in Central Park West at 9 a.m. The parade then goes to Columbus Circle. It turns onto to Central Park South and goes down 6th Avenue, and at 34th Street, it makes its final turn west, and it ends at 7th Avenue in front of Macy's Herald Square. So if you get up early, and I had a listener who called it. She said, I'm so excited. I've never done it. I'm going to bring my kids, and I warned her. If you're bringing little kids, really try to get there very early. Some people get there at 6 a.m. and head from the west side of Central Park West from 75th to 61st Street. On 6th Avenue, the great views are from West 59th to West 38th. I would not watch on 6th Avenue between 34th and 38th Street because the national television broadcast limits viewing there. So go to com slash social slash parade. 15 giant character balloons, 28 floats, 36 novelty inherit- and heritage inflatables, 800 clowns, Ten marching bands, nine performance groups, Broadway stars, musical stars, and the one and only Santa Claus. So a lot of the shows, Six, Moulin Rouge, Wicked, they're going to perform. And Annie Live, which is a TV adaptation of the original Broadway production, will give you a little sneak preview of the new show that's going to air on December 2nd. And don't forget... If you don't want to leave the turkey in the oven or you don't want to leave your house, NBC TV does it live. Savannah Guthrie, Hoda, Al Rocha, they're all hosting the show. And Carrie Underwood is going to actually sing from her album, My Gift. So you've got the Wednesday night before. You've got the parade on Thursday. And again, I have to tell you, you must have proof of COVID-19 vaccination. Otherwise, they feel it will be a disaster. So you've got to have the proof. You need the vaccination card, and you need your ID. And it's got to be a photo ID. So if you don't have a driver's license, you've got to get something, okay? Don't come all the way without that, because they will turn you away. Not to be mean, they're just being cautious. All right? So think about it. Put it in your holiday plans. It's something quite spectacular. And if you can't get there, it's okay. You can watch it on NBC TV. All right, everyone. I'm so glad you were with me this Sunday. We love sharing the show with you. And we'll see you after Thanksgiving next Sunday, beginning at 2 o'clock. And I hope you're all relaxed football big day for all these holidays and we do this every Sunday yeah every Sunday starting at two o'clock and you're always invited you're always part of it and don't forget you can get us on Facebook on Instagram we've got podcasts we always podcast the show and let me tell you is another original podcast and you are our welcome guest I'm Joan Hamburg. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and you're listening to WABC Radio.